Roughing It in the Bush by Susanna Moody. Chapter 10. Brian, the Still Hunter. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Moira Fogarty. Roughing It in the Bush by Susanna Moody. Chapter 10. Brian, the Still Hunter. O'er memory's glass I see his shadow flit, Though he was gathered to the silent dust Long years ago, a strange and wayward man That shunned companionship and lived apart, The leafy covert of the dark brown woods, The gleamy lakes hid in their gloomy depths, Whose still, deep waters never knew the stroke Of cleaving oar, or echoed to the sound of social life, Contained for him the sum of human happiness. With dog and gun, day after day, he tracked the nimble deer through all the tangled mazes of the forest. It was early day. I was alone in the old shanty, preparing breakfast, and now and then stirring the cradle with my foot, when a tall, thin, middle-aged man walked into the house, followed by two large, strong dogs. Placing the rifle he had carried on his shoulder in a corner of the room, he advanced to the hearth, and without speaking, or seemingly looking at me, lighted his pipe and commenced smoking. The dogs, after growling and snapping at the cat, who had not given the strangers a very courteous reception, sat down on the hearthstone on either side of their taciturn master, eyeing him from time to time, as if long habit had made them understand all his motions. There was a great contrast between the dogs. The one was a brindled bulldog of the largest size, a most formidable and powerful brute. The other a staghound, tawny, deep-chested, and strong-limbed. I regarded the man and his hairy companions with silent curiosity. He was between forty and fifty years of age. His head, nearly bald, was studded at the sides with strong, coarse, black-curling hair. His features were high, his complexion brightly dark, and his eyes, in size, shape, and color, greatly resembled the eyes of a hawk. The face itself was sorrowful and taciturn, and his thin, compressed lips looked as if they were not much accustomed to smile, or often to unclose to hold social communion with anyone. He stood at the side of the huge hearth, silently smoking, his eyes bent on the fire, and now and then he patted the heads of his dogs, reproving their exuberant expression of attachment with, "'Down, music! Down, chance!' "'A cold, clear morning,' said I, in order to attract his attention and draw him into conversation. A nod, without raising his head or withdrawing his eyes from the fire, was his only answer, and, turning from my unsociable guest, I took up the baby, who just then awoke sat down on a low stool by the table, and began feeding her. During this operation I once or twice caught the stranger's hawk-eye fixed upon me and the child, but words spoke he none, and presently, after whistling to his dogs, he resumed his gun and strode out. When Moody and Monaghan came in to breakfast, I told them what a strange visitor I had had, and Moody laughed at my vain attempt to induce him to talk. "'He is a strange being,' I said. "'I must find out who and what he is.' "'In the afternoon an old soldier called Leighton, 
who had served during the American War and got a grant of land about a mile in the rear of our location, came in to trade for a cow. Now, this Leighton was a perfect ruffian, a man whom no one liked and whom all feared. He was a deep drinker, a great swearer, in short, a perfect reprobate, who never cultivated his land, but went jobbing about from farm to farm, trading horses and cattle, and cheating in a pettifogging way. Uncle Joe had employed him to sell Moody a young heifer, and he had brought her over for him to look at. When he came in to be paid, I described the stranger of the morning, and as I knew that he was familiar with everyone in the neighborhood, I asked if he knew him. "'No one should know him better than myself,' he said. "'Tis old Brian B., the still-hunter, and a near neighbor of yarn. "'A sour, morose, queer chap he is, and as mad as a March hare. "'He's from Lancashire, in England, and came to this country some twenty years ago with his wife, "'who was a pretty young lass in those days, and slim enough then, though she's so awful fleshy now. "'He had lots of money, too, and he brought four hundred acres of land "'just at the corner of the concession line where it meets the main road. "'And excellent land it is.' and a better farmer, while he stuck to his business, never went into the bush, for it was all bush here then. He was a dashing, handsome fellow, too, and did not hoard the money either. He loved his pipe and his pot too well, and at last he left off farming and gave himself to them altogether. Many a jolly booze he and I have had, I can tell you. Brian was an awful passionate man, and when the liquor was in and the wit was out, as savage and as quarrelsome as a bear— at such times there was no one but Ned Leighton dared go near him. We once had a pitched battle, in which I was conqueror, and ever arter he yielded a sort of sulky obedience to all I said to him. After being on the spree for a week or two, he would take fits of remorse, and return home to his wife, would fall down at her knees and ask her forgiveness, and cry like a child. At other times he would hide himself up in the woods, and steal home at night, and get what he wanted out of the pantry, without speaking a word to anyone. He went on with these pranks for some years till he took a fit of the blue devils. "'Come away, Ned, to the lake with me,' he said he. "'I am weary of my life, and I want a change.' "'Shall we take the fishing tackle?' says I. "'The black bass are in prime season, and F will lend us the old canoe. He's got some capital rum up from Kingston. We'll fish all day and have a spree at night.' "'It's not to fish I'm going,' says he. "'To shoot, then?' I've bought Rockwood's new rifle. It's neither to fish nor to shoot, Ned. It's a new game I'm going to try, so come along. Well, to the lake we went. The day was very hot, and our path lay through the woods and over those scorching plains for eight long miles. I thought I should have dropped by the way, but during our long walk my companion never opened his lips. He strode on before me at a half-run, never once turning his head. The man must be the devil, says I and accustomed to a warmer place, or he must feel this. Hello, Brian, stop there. Do you mean to kill me? Take it easy, says he. You'll see another day arter this. I've business on hand and cannot wait. Well, on we went at the same awful rate, and it was midday when we got to the little tavern on the lakeshore, kept by one F, who had a boat for the convenience of strangers who came to visit the place. Here we got our dinner, and a glass of rum to wash it down. But Brian was moody, and to all my jokes he only returned a sort of grunt. And while I was talking with F, he steps out, and a few minutes arter we saw him crossing the lake in the old canoe. 
"'What's the matter with Brian?' says F. "'All does not seem right with him, Ned. "'You had better take the boat and look arter him.' Pooh says I. "'He's often so, and grows so glum nowadays "'that I will cut his acquaintance altogether if he does not improve.' "'He drinks awful hard,' says F. "'Maybe he's got a fit of the delirium tremulous. "'There's no telling what he may be up to at this minute.' "'My mind misgave me, too.' So I e'en takes the oars and pushes out right upon Brian's track, and by the Lord Harry, if I did not find him upon my landing on the opposite shore, lying wallowing in his blood with his throat cut. Is that you, Brian? says I, giving him a kick with my foot to see if he was alive or dead. What on earth tempted you to play me and F such a dirty, mean trick as to go and stick yourself like a pig, bringing such a discredit upon the house? and you so far from home and those who should nurse you. I was so mad with him that, saving your presence, ma'am, I swore awfully and called him names that would be undecent to repeat here, but he only answered with groans and a horrid gurgling in his throat. It's a choking you are, said I, but you shan't have your own way and die so easily either if I can punish you by keeping you alive. So I just turned him upon his stomach with his head down the steep bank but he still kept choking and growling black in the face. Leighton then detailed some particulars of his surgical practice, which it is not necessary to repeat. He continued, I bound up his throat with my handkerchief, and took him neck and heels, and threw him into the bottom of the boat. Presently he came to himself a little, and sat up in the boat, and would you believe it, made several attempts to throw himself in the water. This will not do, says I, you have done mischief enough already by cutting your weasand. If you dare to try that again, I will kill you with the oar. I held it up to threaten him. He was scared and lay down as quiet as a lamb. I put my foot upon his breast. Lie still now, or you'll catch it. He looked piteously at me. He could not speak, but his eyes seemed to say, Have pity upon me, Ned. Don't kill me. Yes, ma'am, this man, who had just cut his throat, and twice arter that tried to drown himself, was afraid that I should knock him on the head and kill him. Ha, ha! I shall never forget the work that F and I had with him arter I got him up to the house. The doctor came and sewed up his throat, and his wife, poor critter, came to nurse him. Bad as he was, she was mortal fond of him. He lay there, sick and unable to leave his bed, for three months, and did nothing but pray to God to forgive him for he thought the devil would surely have him for cutting his own throat. And when he got about again, which is now twelve years ago, he left off drinking entirely, and wanders about the woods with his dogs, hunting. He seldom speaks to anyone, and his wife's brother carries on the farm for the family. He is so shy of strangers that tis a wonder he came in here. The old wives are afraid of him, but you need not heed him. His troubles are to himself. He harms no one." Leighton departed, and left me brooding over the sad tale which he had told in such an absurd and jesting manner. It was evident from the account he had given of Brian's attempted at suicide that the hapless hunter was not wholly answerable for his conduct, that he was a harmless maniac. The next morning, at the very same hour, Brian again made his appearance, but instead of the rifle across his shoulder, a large stone jar occupied the place, suspended by a stout leather thong. Without saying a word, but with a truly benevolent smile that fitted slowly over his stern features and lighted them up like a sunbeam breaking from beneath a stormy cloud, 
he advanced to the table, and unslinging the jar set it down before me, and in a low and gruff, but by no means an unfriendly voice, said, "'Milk for the child,' and vanished. "'How good it was of him! How kind!' I exclaimed, as I poured the precious gift of four quarts of pure new milk out into a deep pan. I had not asked him, had never said that the poor weanling wanted milk. It was the courtesy of a gentleman, of a man of benevolence and refinement. For weeks did my strange, silent friend steal in, take up the empty jar, and supply its place with another replenished with milk. The baby knew his step, and would hold out her hands to him and cry, Milk! And Brian would stoop down and kiss her, and his two great dogs lick her face. Have you any children, Mr. B? Yes, five, but none like this. My little girl is greatly indebted to you for your kindness. She's welcome, or she would not get it. You are strangers, but I like you all. You look kind, and I would like to know more about you. Moody shook hands with the old hunter, and assured him that we should always be glad to see him. After this invitation, Brian became a frequent guest. He would sit and listen with delight to Moody when he described to him elephant hunting at the Cape, grasping his rifle in a determined manner, and whistling an encouraging air to his dogs. I asked him one evening what made him so fond of hunting. "'Tis the excitement,' he said. "'It drowns thought, and I love to be alone. I am sorry for the creatures, too, for they are free and happy, yet I am led by an instinct I cannot restrain to kill them.' Sometimes the sight of their dying agonies recalls painful feelings, and then I lay aside the gun and do not hunt for days. But tis fine to be alone with God in the great woods, to watch the sunbeams stealing through the thick branches, the blue sky breaking in upon you in patches, and to know that all is bright and shiny above you, in spite of the gloom that surrounds you. After a long pause he continued, with much solemn feeling in his look and tone, I lived a life of folly for years, for I was respectably born and educated, and had seen something of the world, perhaps more than was good before I left home for the woods, and from the teaching I had received from kind relatives and parents I should have known how to have conducted myself better. But, madam, if we associate long with the depraved and ignorant, we learn to become even worse than they are. I felt deeply my degradation, felt that I had become the slave to low vice, and in order to emancipate myself from the hateful tyranny of evil passions, I did a very rash and foolish thing. I need not mention the manner in which I transgressed God's holy laws. All the neighbors know it, and must have told you long ago. I could have borne reproof, but they turned my sorrow into indecent jests, and unable to bear their coarse ridicule, I made companions of my dogs and gun, and went forth into the wilderness." Hunting became a habit. I could no longer live without it, and it supplies the stimulant which I lost when I renounced the cursed whiskey bottle. I remember the first hunting excursion I took alone in the forest. How sad and gloomy I felt. I thought that there was no creature in the world so miserable as myself. I was tired and hungry, and I sat down upon a fallen tree to rest. All was still as death around me and I was fast sinking to sleep, when my attention was roused by a long, wild cry. 
My dog, for I had not chance then, and he's no hunter, pricked up his ears, but instead of answering with a bark of defiance, he crouched down, trembling at my feet. "'What does this mean?' I cried, and I cocked my rifle and sprang upon the log. The sound came nearer upon the wind. It was like the deep baying of a pack of hounds in full cry. Presently a noble deer rushed past me, and fast upon his trail— I see them now, like so many black devils, swept by a pack of ten or fifteen large fierce wolves, with fiery eyes and bristling hair, and paws that seemed hardly to touch the ground in their eager haste. I thought not of danger, for with their prey in view I was safe, but I felt every nerve within me tremble for the fate of the poor deer. The wolves gained upon him at every bound. A close thicket intercepted his path, and rendered desperate he turned at bay. His nostrils were dilated, and his eyes seemed to send forth long streams of light. It was wonderful to witness the courage of the beast, how bravely he repelled the attacks of his deadly enemies, how gallantly he tossed them to the right and left, and spurned them from beneath his hooves. Yet all his struggles were useless, and he was quickly overcome and torn to pieces by his ravenous foes. At that moment he seemed more unfortunate than even myself, for I could not see in what manner he had deserved his fate. All his speed and energy, his courage and fortitude had been exerted in vain. I had tried to destroy myself, but he, with every effort vigorously made for self-preservation, was doomed to meet the fate he dreaded. Is God just to his creatures? With this sentence on his lips, he started abruptly from his seat and left the house. One day he found me painting some wild flowers, and was greatly interested in watching the progress I made in the group. Late in the afternoon of the following day, he brought me a large bunch of splendid spring flowers. "'Draw these,' said he. "'I have been all the way to the Lake Plains to find them for you.' Little Katie, grasping them one by one with infantile joy, kissed every lovely blossom. "'These are God's pictures,' said the hunter. "'And the child, who is all nature, understands them in a minute. "'Is it not strange that these beautiful things are hid away in the wilderness, "'where no eyes but the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the wood "'and the insects that live upon them ever see them? "'Does God provide for the pleasure of such creatures these flowers? "'Is his benevolence gratified by the admiration of animals?' whom we have been taught to consider as having neither thought nor reflection. When I am alone in the forest, these thoughts puzzle me. Knowing that to argue with Brian was only to call into action the slumbering fires of his fatal malady, I turned the conversation by asking him why he called his favourite dog Chance. "'I found him,' said he, forty miles back in the bush. He was a mere skeleton. At first I took him for a wolf.' but the shape of his head undeceived me. I opened my wallet and called him to me. He came slowly, stopping and wagging his tail at every step, and looking me wistfully in the face. I offered him a bit of dried venison, and he soon became friendly, and followed me home, and has never left me since. I called him Chance after the manner I happened with him, and I would not part with him for twenty dollars. Alas, for poor Chance! He had, unknown to his master, contracted a private liking for fresh mutton, and one night he killed no less than eight sheep that belonged to Mr. D. on the front road.
the culprit, who had been long suspected, was caught in the very act, and this mischance cost him his life. Brian was sad and gloomy for many weeks after his favourite's death. "'I would have restored the sheep fourfold,' he said, "'if he would but have spared the life of my dog.' My recollections of Brian seemed more particularly to concentrate in the adventures of one night, when I happened to be left alone for the first time since my arrival in Canada. I cannot now imagine how I could have been such a fool as to give way for four and twenty hours to such childish fears, but so it was, and I will not disguise my weakness from my indulgent reader. Moody had bought a very fine cow of a black man named Molyneux, for which he was to give twenty-seven dollars. The man lived twelve miles back in the woods, and one fine frosty spring day—don't smile at the term frosty, thus connected with the genial season of the year—the term is perfectly correct when applied to the Canadian spring, which, until the middle of May, is the most dismal season of the year. He and John Monaghan took a rope and the dog, and sallied forth to fetch the cow home. Moody said that they should be back by six o'clock in the evening, and charged me to have something cooked for supper when they returned, as he doubted not their long walk in the sharp air would give them a good appetite. This was during the time that I was without a servant, and living in old Mrs. S.'s shanty. The day was so bright and clear, and Katie was so full of frolic and play, rolling upon the floor or toddling from chair to chair, that the day passed on without my feeling remarkably lonely. At length the evening drew nigh, and I began to expect my husband's return, and to think of the supper that I was to prepare for his reception. The red heifer that we had bought of Leighton came lowing to the door to be milked, but I did not know how to milk in those days, and besides this I was terribly afraid of cattle. Yet, as I knew that milk would be required for the tea, I ran across the meadow to Mrs. Joe, and begged that one of her girls would be so kind as to milk for me. My request was greeted with a rude burst of laughter from the whole set. "'If you can't milk,' said Mrs. Joe, "'it's high time you should learn. My girls are above being helps.' "'I would not ask you, but as a great favour. I am afraid of cows.' "'Afraid of cows! Lord bless the woman! A farmer's wife and afraid of cows!' Here followed another laugh at my expense and, indignant at the refusal of my first and last request, when they had all borrowed so much from me, I shut the inhospitable door and returned home. After many ineffectual attempts, I succeeded at last, and bore my half-pail of milk in triumph to the house. Yes, I felt prouder of that milk than many an author of the best thing he ever wrote, whether in verse or prose, and it was doubly sweet when I considered that I had procured it without being under any obligation to my ill-natured neighbours. I had learned a useful lesson of independence, to which, in after years, I had often again to refer. I fed little Katie and put her to bed, made the hot cakes for tea, boiled the potatoes, and laid the ham, cut in nice slices, in the pan, ready to cook the moment I saw the men enter the meadow, and arranged the little room with scrupulous care and neatness. A glorious fire was blazing on the hearth, and everything was ready for their supper, and I began to look out anxiously for their arrival. The night had closed in cold and foggy, and I could no longer distinguish any object at more than a few yards from the door. Bringing in as much wood as I thought would last me for several hours, I closed the door, 
and for the first time in my life I found myself at night in a house entirely alone. Then I began to ask myself a thousand torturing questions as to the reason of their unusual absence. Had they lost their way in the woods? Could they have fallen in with wolves, one of my early bugbears? Could any fatal accident have befallen them? I started up, opened the door, held my breath, and listened. The little brook lifted up its voice in loud, hoarse wailing, or mocked in its babbling to the stones the sound of human voices. As it became later, my fears increased in proportion. I grew too superstitious and nervous to keep the door open. I not only closed it, but dragged a heavy box in front, for bolt there was none. Several ill-looking men had, during the day, asked their way to Toronto. I felt alarmed lest such rude wayfarers should come to-night and demand a lodging, and find me alone and unprotected. Once I thought of running across to Mrs. Joe, and asking her to let one of the girls stay with me until Moody returned, but the way in which I had been repulsed in the evening prevented me from making a second appeal to their charity. Hour after hour wore away, and the crowing of the cocks proclaimed midnight, and yet they came not. I had burnt out all my wood, and I dared not open the door to fetch in more. The candle was expiring in the socket, and I had not courage to go up into the loft and procure another before it went finally out. Cold, heart-weary and faint, I sat and cried. Every now and then the furious barking of the dogs at the neighboring farms and the loud cackling of the geese upon our own made me hope that they were coming, and then I listened till the beating of my own heart excluded all other sounds. Oh, that unwearied brook! How it sobbed and moaned like a fretful child! What unreal terrors and fanciful illusions my too active mind conjured up, whilst listening to its mysterious tones! Just as the moon rose, the howling of a pack of wolves from the great swamp in our rear filled the whole air. Their yells were answered by the barking of all the dogs in the vicinity, and the geese, unwilling to be behind hand in the general confusion, set up the most discordant screams. I had often heard, and even been amused during the winter, particularly on thaw nights, with hearing the howls of these formidable wild beasts. But I had never before heard them alone, and when one dear to me was abroad amid their haunts. They were directly in the track that Moody and Monaghan must have taken, and I now made no doubt that they had been attacked and killed on their return through the woods with the cow, and I wept and sobbed until the cold grey dawn peered in upon me through the small, dim window. I have passed many a long, cheerless night, when my dear husband was away from me during the rebellion, and I was left in my forest home with five little children, and only an old Irish woman to draw and cut wood for my fire, and attend to the wants of the family but that was the saddest and longest night I ever remember. Just as the day broke, my friends the wolves set up a parting benediction so loud and wild and near to the house that I was afraid lest they should break through the frail window or come down the low wide chimney and rob me of my child. But their detestable howls died away in the distance, and the bright sun rose up and dispersed the wild horrors of the night, and I looked once more timidly around me. The sight of the table spread and the uneaten supper renewed my grief, for I could not divest myself of the idea that Moody was dead. 
I opened the door and stepped forth into the pure air of the early day. A solemn and beautiful repose still hung like a veil over the face of nature. The mists of night still rested upon the majestic woods, and not a sound but the flowing of the waters went up in the vast stillness. The earth had not yet raised her matin hymn to the throne of the Creator. Sad at heart, and weary and worn in spirit, I went down to the spring and washed my face and head, and drank a deep draught of its icy waters. On returning to the house I met near the door old Brian the hunter, with a large fox dangling across his shoulder, and the dogs following at his heels. "'Good God! Mrs. Moody, what is the matter? You are early abroad this morning, and look dreadful ill. Is anything wrong at home? Is the baby or your husband sick?' "'Oh!' I cried, bursting into tears. "'I fear he is killed by the wolves.' The man stared at me as if he doubted the evidence of his senses, and well he might. But this one idea had taken such strong possession of my mind that I could admit no other. I then told him, as well as I could find words, the cause of my alarm, to which he listened very kindly and patiently. "'Set your heart at rest. Your husband is safe. It is a long journey on foot to Molyneux, to one unacquainted with a blazed path and a bush road. They have stayed all night at the black man's shanty, and you will see them back at noon.' I shook my head and continued to weep. "'Well, now, in order to satisfy you, I will saddle my mare, and ride over to the niggers, and bring you word as fast as I can.' I thanked him sincerely for his kindness, and returned in somewhat better spirits to the house. At ten o'clock my good messenger returned with the glad tidings that all was well. The day before, when half the journey had been accomplished, John Monaghan let go the rope by which he led the cow, and she had broken away through the woods and returned to her old master, and when they again reached his place, night had set in, and they were obliged to wait until the return of day. Moody laughed heartily at all my fears, but indeed I found them no joke. Brian's eldest son, a lad of fourteen, was not exactly an idiot, but what, in the old country, is very expressively termed by the poor people, a natural. He could feed and assist himself, had been taught imperfectly to read and write, and could go to and from the town on errands and carry a message from one farmhouse to another. But he was a strange, wayward creature, and evidently inherited in no small degree his father's malady. During the summer months he lived entirely in the woods, near his father's dwelling, only returning to obtain food, which was generally left for him in an outhouse. In the winter, driven home by the severity of the weather, he would sit for days together moping in the chimney-corner, without taking the least notice of what was passing around him. Brian never mentioned this boy, who had a strong, active figure, a handsome but very inexpressive face, without a deep sigh, and I feel certain that half his own dejection was occasioned by the mental aberration of his child. One day he sent the lad with a note to our house, to know if Moody would purchase the half of an ox that he was going to kill. There happened to stand in the corner of the room an open wood-box, into which several bushels of fine apples had been thrown, and while Moody was writing an answer to the note, the eyes of the idiot were fastened, as if by some magnetic influence, upon the apples. Knowing that Brian had a very fine orchard, I did not offer the boy any of the fruit. When the note was finished, I handed it to him. The lad grasped it mechanically, 
without removing his fixed gaze from the apples. "'Give that to your father, Tom.' The boy answered not. His ears, his eyes, his whole soul were concentrated in the apples. Ten minutes elapsed, but he stood motionless, like a pointer at dead set. "'My good boy, you can go.' He did not stir. "'Is there anything you want?' "'I want,' said the lad, without moving his eyes from the objects of his intense desire, and speaking in a slow, pointed manner, which ought to have been heard to be fully appreciated, "'I want apples.' "'Oh, if that's all, take what you like.' The permission once obtained, the boy flung himself upon the box with the rapacity of a hawk upon its prey, after being long poised in the air to fix its certain aim. Thrusting his hands to the right and left in order to secure the finest specimens of the coveted fruit, scarcely allowing himself time to breathe until he had filled his old straw hat and all his pockets with apples. To help laughing was impossible, while this new Tom o' Bedlam darted from the house and scampered across the field for dear life, as if afraid that we should pursue him to rob him of his prize. It was during this winter that our friend Brian was left a fortune of three hundred pounds per annum, but it was necessary for him to return to his native country in order to take possession of the property. This he positively refused to do, and when we remonstrated with him on the apparent imbecility of this resolution, he declared that he would not risk his life in crossing the Atlantic twice for twenty times that sum. What strange inconsistency was this in a being who had three times attempted to take away that which he dreaded so much to lose accidentally? I was much amused with an account which he gave me, in his quaint way, of an excursion he went upon with a botanist, to collect specimens of the plants and flowers of Upper Canada. It was a fine spring day, some ten years ago, and I was yoking my oxen to drag in some oats I had just sown, when a little fat punchy man with a broad, red, good-natured face, and carrying a small black leathern wallet across his shoulder, called to me over the fence and asked me if my name was Brian B. I said, yes, what of that? Only you are the man I want to see— they tell me that you are better acquainted with the woods than any person in these parts, and I will pay you anything in reason if you will be my guide for a few days. "'Where do you want to go?' said I. "'Nowhere in particular,' says he. "'I want to go here and there, in all directions, to collect plants and flowers.' "'That is still hunting with a vengeance,' thought I. "'Today I must drag in my oats. If tomorrow will suit, we will be off.' "'And your charge?' said he. I like to be certain of that. A dollar a day. My time and labor upon my farm at this busy season is worth more than that. True, said he. Well, I'll give you what you ask. At what time will you be ready to start? By daybreak, if you wish it. Away he went, and by daylight next morning he was at my door, mounted upon a stout French pony. "'What are you going to do with that beast?' said I. "'Horses are of no use on the road that you and I are to travel. "'You had better leave him in my stable.' "'I want him to carry my traps,' said he. "'It may be some days that we shall be absent.' 
I assured him that he must be his own beast of burthen, and carry his axe and blanket and wallet of food upon his own back. The little body did not much relish this arrangement, but as there was no help for it, he very good-naturedly complied. Off we set, and soon climbed the steep ridge at the back of your farm, and got upon Lake Plains. The woods were flush with flowers, and the little man grew into such an ecstasy that at every fresh specimen he uttered a yell of joy, cut a caper in the air, and flung himself down upon them, as if he was drunk with delight. "'Oh, what treasures, what treasures!' he cried. "'I shall make my fortune!' "'It is seldom I laugh,' quoth Brian. "'But I could not help laughing at this odd little man, "'for it was not the beautiful blossom, such as you delight to paint, "'that drew forth these exclamations, "'but the queer little plants which he had rummaged for at the roots of old trees, "'among the moss and long grass. "'He sat upon a decayed trunk which lay in our path,' I do believe for a long hour, making an oration over some greyish thing spotted with red that grew upon it, which looked more like mould than plants, declaring himself repaid for all the trouble and expense he had been at, if it were only to obtain a sight of them. I gathered him a beautiful blossom of the lady's slipper, but he pushed it back when I presented it to him, saying, "'Yes, yes, tis very fine. I have seen that often before.' "'but these lichens are splendid.' "'The man had so little taste that I thought him a fool, "'and so I left him to talk to his dear plants "'while I shot partridges for our supper. "'We spent six days in the woods, "'and the little man filled his black wallet "'with all sorts of rubbish, "'as if he willfully shut his eyes to the beautiful flowers "'and chose only to admire ugly, insignificant plants "'that everybody else passes by without noticing.' and which, often as I had been in the woods, I never had observed before. I never pursued a deer with such earnestness as he continued his hunt for what he called specimens. When we came to the cold creek, which is pretty deep in places, he was in such a hurry to get at some plants that grew under the water, that in reaching after them he lost his balance and fell head over heels into the stream. He got a thorough ducking, and was in a terrible fright, but he held on to the flowers which had caused the trouble, and thanked his stars that he had saved them as well as his life. <laughs> well, he was an innocent man, continued Brian. A very little made him happy, and at night he would sing and amuse himself like a child. He gave me ten dollars for my trouble, and I never saw him again, but I often think of him when hunting in the woods that we wandered through together and I pluck the wee plants that he used to admire, and wonder why he preferred them to the fine flowers. When our resolution was formed to sell our farm, and take up our grant of land in the backwoods, no one was so earnest in trying to persuade us to give up this ruinous scheme as our friend Brian B., who became quite eloquent in his description of the trials and sorrows that awaited us. During the last week of our stay in the township of H., he visited us every evening, and never bade us good-night without a tear moistening his cheek. We parted with the hunter as with an old friend, and we never met again. His fate was a sad one. After we left that part of the country, he fell into a moping melancholy, which ended in self-destruction. But a kinder, warmer-hearted man, while he enjoyed the light of reason, has seldom crossed our path. 
THE DYING HUNTER TO HIS DOG Lie down, lie down, my noble hound, that joyful bark give o'er. It wakes the lonely echoes round, but rouses me no more. Thy lifted ears, thy swelling chest, thine eye so keenly bright, no longer kindle in my breast the thrill of fierce delight. As following thee on foaming steed, my eager soul outstripped thy speed. Lie down, lie down, my faithful hound, and watch this night with me, for thee again the horn shall sound by mountain, stream, and tree, and thou along the forest glade shall track the flying deer, when cold and silent I am laid in chill oblivion here. Another voice shall cheer thee on, and glory when the chase is won. Lie down, lie down, my gallant hound, thy master's life is sped, and couched upon the dewy ground tis thine to watch the dead. But when the blush of early day is kindling in the sky, then speed thee, faithful friend, away, and to my Agnes high, and guide her to this lonely spot, though my closed eyes behold her not. Lie down, lie down, my trusty hound, death comes, and now we part. In my dull ear strange murmurs sound, more faintly throbs my heart. The many twinkling lights of heaven scarce glimmer in the blue. Chill round me falls the breath of even, cold on my brow the dew. Earth, stars, and heavens are lost to sight. The chase is o'er. Brave friend, good night. End of chapter 10 Recorded in Toronto, Ontario by Moira Fogarty September 2010